Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join. Troubled times at the U.S. Supreme Court, and if you had any doubt about that, I think last year's decision in the Dobbs case really reinforced that idea. And it's not just a crisis in confidence around the justices and their work. It's also about the dynamic at the court. This question about leaking the results of cases before they're announced. These aren't things that we're used to in the third branch of the federal government. And none of those doubts has kind of slowed this term. There's a case before the Supreme Court right now that has a chance to change how the internet works as we know it. In 2015, a California college student who was studying abroad in Paris was one of 130 killed in a series of terrorist attacks in that city. The following year, her father sued Google and other tech companies, accusing them of spreading radicalizing content. While there is little to no evidence that these specific terrorists viewed any of the asserted radicalizing content in question, from the father's perspective, the tech companies were responsible for the harm to his daughter and his family because they helped radicalize users more generally. This is one of multiple lawsuits seeking to overturn protections that tech companies are provided under federal law by what's called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Under Section 230, platforms are allowed to make rules about what users can and cannot post without being held legally responsible for user content. Proponents of Section 230 are concerned that if its protections are removed, tech companies will have little incentive to police any content on their platforms out of fear that they could subject themselves to liability. Meanwhile, some who disagree with Section 230's protections believe it has allowed tech companies to improperly restrict free speech. So what are the ramifications of this case? What arguments are the parties using about the legality of Section 230? And how does this case fall into the context of the court as it is constituted and it is ruling right now? How does this case maybe shape the Internet as we know it moving forward? We want to take a look, a close look, at what the court is up to and the dynamic that seems to have taken hold of the nine justices. A little later, we're going to talk about some of the other issues the court is considering this term, including whether the Biden administration's student loan debt relief program is lawful, and there is a critical challenge to affirmative action before the justices as well. But right now, we want to drill down on specifically this Section 230 question, and we are joined by one of my favorite experts on the subject, Kimberly at Ken Store is a senior opinion writer and columnist for Boston Globe Opinion. She's a contributor to MSNBC and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. She also is someone who sits in uh, to guest host on WBEUR's On Point from time to time. Kimberly, welcome back to Detroit Today. It's wonderful to talk to you, Stephen. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So let's start with this section 230 case and why so many people are paying close attention to it. 
Yes, so this case, as you correctly laid down, has to do with the way uh, that uh, internet companies, specifically social media companies like Twitter, that uh, sort of act in this in-between legal space when it comes to communications regulation, how they should be treated under 230. So just to give listeners an idea, overall the way uh, that we regulate platforms that have communication sort of ranges from uh, things like telephones, right? It, the, we do not hold responsible a telephone company if someone uses a telephone to plan a terrorist plot. They're just providing a venue, they provide the same venue to everyone. But on the other hand, you have something like a newspaper, that everything that is printed in that newspaper, whether the newspaper endorses it or not, is subject to uh, things like libel laws or, or other things to hold them responsible for that conduct. They are publishers. So what is Twitter? That is the question that the Supreme Court is considering. If the Supreme Court finds that Section 230 applies to them, that would mean that they would be treated a little closer to what a telephone line is, that they are not responsible for the content that is posted. But what these challengers, these families uh, of uh, terrorism victims are saying is no, these are not just uh, providing content openly to everyone. They have algorithms that actually push content to users. So if someone has been on a site about cooking, it will push more cooking content to their screens because based on what they've done before. And in this case, they're saying people who are radicalizing on the internet with terrorism uh, or potentially engaging in terrorism, they're getting more radicalization content pushed to them. And in that way, Twitter, Google, and these other companies are playing a role. And so they should not be um, protected by this exemption. Yeah. So as I said in the open, this is all taking place in the context of a court that is really facing different kinds of challenges to its credibility than what I can remember in, in, in recent decades. Uh, put that in, in context for us. What, what is going on uh, at the court with the justices and the cases and, of course, uh, the way that they interact with each other, which is strange as well? Yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right. Since the leak of the Dobb opinion particularly, but I would say even longer than that, with just the rapid shift in ideology on the court with the appointment of three very conservative justices by Donald Trump, one to replace the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, that really dramatically changed the court in a way uh, that I think the nation isn't used to. The court obviously has different justices. They come on from time to time. But it was such a rapid change, followed by the leak of that Dobbs decision, which didn't just overturn Roe versus Wade, but really uh, uh, the, the opinion Justice Alito wrote really ripped it to shreds in a way that felt very political to those that read it. It really made the court take center stage in a way that the court is more in the background when we talk about politics, uh, but also really um, shattered for a lot of people what they thought the Supreme Court is as this neutral arbiter of these big legal questions, leaving politics aside. People all knew that the justices were people, they had political bents, but 
after this, according to polling, the trust in the court has, has been really, really shaken by this. And that does from time to time turn up or you see evidence of that in the way some of these cases are argued. Mm -hmm. I would say the Section 230 case was one of the rare ones where there seemed to be ideological um, agreement across the ideological <laughs> spectrum that this is really complicated stuff and we don't know what to do with it. Yeah, right. Um, but in a lot of other cases, you do see those divisions more clearly. Yeah. Before we move deeper into the, the, the current court and its justices and and the credibility problem, I do want to go back quickly to this 230 question and talk about how important the ruling could be here. Uh, we have had a debate or an argument in this country for a long time about what these media and social media companies are. Are they publishers? Are they platforms? Are they some mix of the two that presents novel questions of what they are from a legal sense? This, this particular case seems to get closer, I guess, to providing some real answers about that than, than other things uh, that we've seen at the court, at least, have, have done. But how much will the court's decision really decide that, you know, finally, or uh, how much influence will it have over the mm -hmm. way that we interact and hold, hold these companies responsible? Well, based on the oral arguments in the case, it looks likely that it won't have much impact at all because the court clearly did not have a big uh, appetite to try to wade into this and make a ruling that could really dramatically change the internet in the ways that you described. This is complicated stuff, Steve. I remember um, thinking about this when I was a journalism student at Wayne State and the internet was very new back in the 90s, <laughs> how laws are going to regulate it because it's such a different thing. We're still grappling with those very same questions today. And the Supreme Court seemed like from oral arguments, it's always, um, you know, a, a gamble to predict, sure. but that they are not ready to jump in and lay down a rule quite that broadly. So I, I don't think you'll see it in this case, but I think somebody, uh, probably Congress, there may be a call to Congress by the court to really study this, figure it out and lay down some clear rules that people understand and that can both protect the existence of these social media companies, but also allow people to be held responsible for uh, putting forth dangerous content. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Kimberly Atkins-Store. She's a senior opinion writer for the Boston Globe, an MSNBC contributor and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast and guest host on WBUR's On Point. We're talking about the Supreme Court, its current term, the cases before the justices, but also the dynamic uh, that surrounds the court right now, the real credibility challenge that it's facing. Uh, we'd love to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call. Let us know how close attention are you maybe paying to the Supreme Court right now? Uh, are you someone who has more or less faith in the justices than you used to? How much does last terms abortion ruling, which not only overturned Roe v. Wade, but went really far to try to restrict the ability of uh, of states and and, uh, and and of women, of course, uh, to, to, to control reproductive uh, freedom. Um, uh, does that influence the way you think about the court and 
the justices. What does it make you think about them? Also, are you paying attention to this Section 230 case that is part of the docket this term? Uh, it is about the internet and media companies on the internet, how responsible they are for content uh, that is, appears on their platforms. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Let's start today with Ken in Troy. Ken, welcome to the show. Stephen, and uh, it's good to talk to you, Kimberly. I, I, I really believe that that there is a there's, there's something of a false premise in the way that 230 and 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 uh, and its approach to um, social media is being handled. Social media is kind of well, not kind of. Social media is hiding behind the newsstand premise, which is that the newsstand itself could not be held responsible for what was in the newspapers and the magazines mm-hmm. that they were selling. And the, the social media platforms are not. They they are in fact the publishers. They they are. Uh, the newsstand is is the internet, if you will, and and the, the they are publishers of of newspapers that only publish letters to the editor. All Twitter is is a newspaper that only publishes two hundred and forty character letters to the editor. <laughs> and and as a, as a newspaper, you can be you know you you have liability for the content in in your letters to the editor. If you publish it, you have liability, and and that's. So, so Ken, Ken, that's a wonderfully uh, easy way to, 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 I guess, make sense of, of all of this and to explain, you know, where the liability lies and, and where it doesn't. Um, of course, Kim, uh, things haven't been decided that cleanly. And one of the reasons is Congress as well. Congress has a lot to do with the way that we think of and regulate these companies. But explain why it's more complicated, I guess, than what Ken is putting forward here. Yeah, so the big difference, and that is a good way to sort of frame the contours of this, but the big difference uh, when you have these social media companies and internet companies that's different from either a newsstand or a newspaper are algorithms. So when you have a newspaper, you have editors that make decisions about the content that is contained within them. They pick and choose which letters to the editor to publish, for example. So that gives them enough control over it that, yes, they are deemed to be liable uh, for the things, for any liability that extends from that. That's different from a, a newsstand. A newsstand does not choose what's in the paper. It's just selling them. But in the middle is our social media companies like this, where they are not themselves choosing what people post, but they have this algorithm, this uh, way to find what people might be interested in and push that content to their screens. And that's the difference here. It's not a person making each of these decisions. It's a computer. But that sets them apart from both of these things. And both Congress and the Supreme Court have really struggled to figure out exactly exactly how to make laws to govern that. The, at, at best, Congress has proposed some laws that would um, study this, allow the, uh, more information to be put forth about them and to learn more about them. Or you have the extreme where some folks want Section 230 to be um, just dropped completely, which would uh, open up another set of problems <laughs> when you don't have any regulations at all. So it's really complicated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ken, I really do... 
appreciate the call and uh, and the comments. Uh, Kimberly, I want to talk a little more before we have to break and raise a little money uh, about uh, the interaction between the justices this term. I think a lot of people were really anticipating a difference in the way that they would uh, just kind of deal with each other. Have, have we seen much of that? I know things at the court sometimes move slowly and it takes a while to figure out what's going on. But how? what's the effect of Dobbs on their deliberations? Yes. So, so far we have not seen many opinions from the court being released, but we have seen a lot of oral arguments where the justices are interacting with each other. And I think that there is a change. Um, I've been covering the court since about 2007. And a lot of times you would see in a case, in a court that was more evenly split ideologically, a 5-4 court, some of the justices trying to make cases and sort of build a consensus. Sometimes Mm -hmm. if there's a, a case, if there's a narrow ruling that could maybe get six or seven justices on board to rule something in a narrow way, you would see some justices like Elena Kagan or even uh, Chief Justice John Roberts sort of trying to find the contours of that and where that consensus could be found. You really have not seen that at all this term. You see the justices sort of forecasting where you think they think the ruling would be. You see the ones in the majority making their case. You see the ones that are likely in the minority making their case. And there really doesn't see a lot of middle ground, uh, any grasping at any sort of middle ground. So I think things have made it differently, both the ideological split itself, that's 6-3 now, and also the recent, um, you know, leak and subsequent investigation, which some justices have publicly said uh, affected the court. And and as Justice Clarence Thomas said, make you look over your shoulder a little bit more. Um, So this certainly has affected the court and the way it operates. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I think um, people who don't sit there every day or every week in the courtroom understand is that the justices are very uh, actively kind of talking to each other during um, during oral arguments, not directly, but in the questions that they ask of the lawyers who are in front of them, really they're sending kind of subtle messages back and forth about what they're thinking, what they think might be a way forward for, for other justices. And I, I guess what I hear you saying is that there seems to be less of that now uh, after Dobbs than there was before. There really is. And I think the student loans case that you mentioned is a good example of that. You, you, there was not a, a, a lot of interchange there. You saw uh, justices that are more left-leaning like Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor sort of say their piece, say they think that uh, the Biden administration clearly had the authority here and talk about how important it is to give debt relief to some students. And then you saw the justices on the other side uh, really making clear their doubt about that at all, expressing uh, a lot of antipathy toward the idea that the Biden administration's executive power is that strong. And even uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, in an uncharacteristic way, sort of talking about the politics of this, saying that is it is it fair even for college students to get uh, a break uh, from their debts when other people, say someone who didn't go to college and instead took out a bank loan to start a business, uh, when they are not being offered the same 
uh, opportunity. I will note that these are both pandemic era policies mm -hmm. and under the pandemic era, we do know that there were PPP loans given to small businesses, many of which were forgiven too. But that sort of tells you this is that was more of a political debate more than a legal one about the executive authority. So you're certainly seeing the court look a lot different during oral arguments than you did in the past. Yeah. Okay, uh, Kimberly Atkins store, stay where you are, and you, the listeners, as well. We're going to take a break. We're going to raise a little money here during our on-air fundraiser, and then we're going to come back to Kimberly to talk about some of the other issues in front of the Supreme Court this term. Uh, you can also join us on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Kimberly Atkins-Store, senior opinion writer and columnist for the Boston Globe. She's also a contributor to MSNBC and co-host of the Sisters-in-Law podcast. You hear her from time to time filling in on WBUR's On Point. Uh, we're talking about this term at the U.S. Supreme Court, the cases that the justices are deciding, the dynamic among the justices after a really contentious and to the term last year and what we might expect as the justices get close to the end of this year's term. We want to hear from you, the listeners as well. Call and tell us what you make of the Supreme Court. What do you make of some of the cases that they are weighing this term? Uh, what effect do you think the ruling that struck down Roe v. Wade last year has on the court's credibility? Are you more likely to believe in what the justices are doing, or are you less? Because uh, that uh, that ruling overturned such an established precedent in uh, American law. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Kimberly, I want to talk uh, a little about the affirmative action case that is in front of the justices. Again, this is an issue that comes up from time to time uh, at the court. Uh, what What's at stake in this particular case? And what's the, I guess, what's the guess that most people have about what they might do? Yeah, so the pair of cases the court is considering on affirmative action has the potential to uh, dramatically impact the way both public and private schools uh, admit students. Um, it, it's a pair of challenges, one brought against Harvard, one brought against the University of North Carolina. And they both are alleging that any consideration of race by a college or university that accepts federal funding is unconstitutional. It's, it's, it's an unconstitutional use uh, of race. Now, keep in mind, most schools, after several previous Supreme Court rulings on affirmative action, which upheld its use but narrowed, made the scope of its availability more and more narrow, 
uh, really forced uh, schools in order to adhere to that past precedent to only use race as one factor. It cannot be the the leading factor. It cannot be the, the deal breaker. Um, it's just one of a host of factors that can be considered by school admissions officials, but there have been consistent attacks on student uh, on the use of affirmative action by a group called Students for Fair Admissions. Um, and it seems from the oral arguments in this case that the Supreme Court could finally have an appetite um, to eliminate the use of race uh, in any uh, in consideration of admissions in any publicly funded school, either private or public. This is a direct result of the change in the court. When there was a 5-4 court, you had essentially now retired Justice Anthony Kennedy in the middle, mm -hmm. who you could really see him struggling with both sides of this argument. And he was the one that put together the latest uh, uh, decision that came from out of a University of Texas case, which said, yes, it can be permissible, but only in a limited, limited case. There is an importance, uh, diversity is an importance, um, a, an important interest to uphold. And the schools that want to have diversity in their classes should have the ability to have some tool to do that, but it can't be the decisive one. I think now that rationality is going to fall by the wayside. So I, I remember in the first term that I was covering the court back in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, mm. uh, there was a, a significant, of course, uh, affirmative action case out of the University of Michigan where Justice O'Connor is put a time uh, frame on this idea of uh, race consideration in, in college admissions. She said, we expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest in student body diversity. I'm interested in that for a couple of reasons. One is that this is the 20th anniversary or close to the 20th anniversary uh, of that of that ruling, it's not quite twenty five, but also mm -hmm. implicit in what she said there was that we would be hard at work coming up with other ways to make sure that um, you know people uh, who were historically barred from uh, from higher education would have more opportunity. And it doesn't seem that that, that, that has happened, number one. Uh, but it also seems like that time limit would be something the justices would have to address if they were to say, well, there is no more consideration of race. I mean, given that uh, that's that it's a precedent of the court and, and that was pretty explicit language. Uh, talk about how that maybe came up even during oral arguments. It did. The, this uh, test in, in the Grutter decision, one of the, the key uh, decisions that upheld affirmative action, uh, Justice O'Connor did say uh, that she expects in 25 years it would no longer be necessary. The question is, what did she mean? Did she mean that to be an actual time limit? Uh, in which case, there are still five years left, I would say, <laughs> uh, point out. Uh, or did was that more of a an expression that said, "Look, we will allow the consideration of race now in hopes that in the future it would be a better one when there are more opportunities for all students to compete more fairly in the college admissions race." 
what the data show is that we are not in that place. When you don't have consideration of race or other sort of factors, it is very difficult for schools who want to have a diverse student body to be able to achieve that. We saw a lot of schools submit briefs uh, that say that very thing. So that could be a signal that we are not yet at this world that uh, retired Justice O'Connor envisioned. But on the other hand, you have other justices who don't really like ongoing um, policies that relate to race. If you look at the voting rights case, for example, in 2013, that struck down a key part of the Voting Rights Act, Chief Justice John Roberts essentially said, you know, this involved a formula that was put into place years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, racism was a problem then in voting. We don't have the evidence that it's still that problem now. So we're going to strike that down. If you want to come back with a new formula, if Congress wants to come back with a new formula, we'll take that up then. And of course, Congress has been unable to. So I do think there is this idea on the court that they don't like these perpetuating racial rulings. They want to be able to say, look, you know, things have changed. We have much more opportunity. We can move beyond when, uh, of course, those who are defending these policies say that's simply not true. Yeah. Uh, And if the court were to say, okay, that's it, Uh, no more racial consideration in admissions at all, uh, what would the recourse even be for uh, people who still care about diversity uh, in college campuses and still worry about the barriers that exist for black and brown uh, applicants? Well, that means that school admissions officials would have to look elsewhere to try to create the kind of broad, diverse balance within their student bodies, uh, other than considering race as a, a a factor in their admissions. There's been a lot of discussion as to whether schools should reevaluate legacy admissions, which the data show by and large protect wealthier, more privileged white students whose parents and and grandparents and great-grandparents have been able to have access to the kind of education that some people still today do not have. Mm -hmm. Do they change things like giving giving, uh, acknowledging things like fencing or other very uh, privileged types of sports, um, other ways to sort of change the way admissions decisions are made. Of course, that will come with a lot of pushback, both from alumni and students and also from colleges themselves. You know, the, the legacy admissions in particular often help them have a healthy endowment by uh, families who who's, uh, who have sure. gone to particular institutions donating back, particularly the wealthier ones. And that will be a hard thing to give up. But um, these are the decisions that administrators and schools will have to make. And these are going to be the things that you will see others push for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone to call and let us know what you make of Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court and its current term, the cases that are before the justices, uh, the dynamic among the justices uh, after last year's contentious end to uh, the Supreme Court term uh, in in late June. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Kimberly, I want to go back to the consideration of uh, the the Biden administration's policy to forgive some portion of 
of student loan debt. One of the issues that, uh, that, that really stands out in that case is the issue of standing. And I feel like this is an issue that often the public doesn't quite get about uh, what the court does. It's it's the initial question, really, that the justices have to face, which is, can we even rule on this issue or this case uh, because we have a litigant before us who has the right to challenge this law or uh, or this policy? Talk about how that works in, in this particular case. Yes. Yeah, so it's a really interesting issue. Standing is what we call a procedural question. It's not uh, the legal issue that the case is seeking to decide, but it's a preliminary question that decides whether the person challenging it even has a right to challenge it. And the general rule is that that person has either either suffered some injury or could stand to suffer some concrete injury based on this policy. So in this case, some of the challengers are a group of states that say, look, the loan servicers in our states stand to lose money um, if this goes into effect. And so the court spent a good chunk of time saying, well, does that really affect the state though? Does that put the state in their place in order to assert these rights or should the loan servicers themselves have been the challengers in this case and they chose not to challenge it. There are also students who did not receive uh, this benefit but in in some cases in in one of the the one of the students that were challenging it did qualify for some loan forgiveness but not as much as others so does that raise to the level of a concrete injury um that gives them the right to sue. So that's going to be the first thing that the court will decide before they even get to whether the Biden administration uh, has that power. I have found, I've found increasingly in cases where the Supreme Court seems to have an appetite to rule on something, the standing question seems to be less <laughs> kind hard. kind of blow by it. <laughs> in the cases where they may not want to. Um, so we will see what happens in this case, exactly what, what reason they make the ruling. But it's also true, though, historically, that the standing question has been more strictly enforced by conservative justices uh, who, who wanted to narrow uh, the court's purview, who wanted to stop the court from getting involved in other things. You've got a 6-3 majority of conservatives now. It would be a little ironic, I think, if, uh, if they blew by that standing question here. Yes, I think that that is the case. So generally speaking, overall, the Supreme Court was really wary to issue new constitutional rules, either expand or constrict the Constitution in any big way. So they would look for any out to avoid <laughs> doing that, to avoid ruling on the legal question. I think you are seeing a big change on that now. They used to really avoid um, overturning past precedents. Obviously, the Dobbs decision shows that that is no longer the case they seem to be wary to make big, broad constitutional pronouncements. Again, the Dobbs decision belies that. So I do see a court that is operating differently in many ways, and a lot of those past standards are falling by the wayside. Yeah, yeah. I also want to talk about uh, Kantanji uh, Brown-Jackson, uh, the first African-American woman uh, appointed to uh, the court. This will be her first full term on the court, uh, and I've seen a little about uh, you know how that's how that's going. One of the interesting uh, stories I saw last week was about a case in which she 
and Justice Gorsuch actually agreed with each other. People thought that was uh, a little unusual given the, the, the wide divide between their politics. But talk about her influence uh, in the room uh, with, the other, with the other justices. She's in a very uh, small minority uh, politically on the court, but she is uh, the first black woman to sit in that room and be able to have her voice heard uh, among the nine. How's that, how's that all unfolding? Yes, she is. She certainly during oral arguments has shown uh, to be a very active participant in the questioning and and sort of setting out, staking out her uh, position on the court. We saw in some of the voting rights cases in particular, her really sort of being an originalist. You know, we usually talk about originalism in terms of more conservative justices Mm -hmm. who look to the original Uh, intent of the Constitution. But she has done that in a different way in trying to say, look, of course, statutes like the Voting Rights Act are are meant to consider race because they were enacted at a time of racial discrimination. If you look to that original content, that actually comes out uh, a different way than other uh, so-called originalists are coming, um, are coming out of. So yes, she certainly is vocal on the court. She will likely in the big cases, mostly be in dissent since she is a part of the cons- uh, the more liberal block of the court. But in that case, yes, sometimes she does agree with people on the other side. I think in new justices, when they uh, get on the court, their first opinions tend to be in less contentious cases where there is room for consensus, which there are some cases like that, cases that involve anything from you know certain court procedural rules to certain criminal cases that can get broader consensus. And in those cases, you can see people on the same side, even if they don't seem to agree ideologically on much. And we have seen that happen. But I think overall, I expect her to be one of the most vocal dissenters this term uh, as some of these bigger cases are decided. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And last question, we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, We don't have a Dobbs on the the docket this, uh, this term, but we have some pretty significant cases. At the end of last term, there was this real disappointment and uh, fundamental questioning about the role of the court uh, on the part significantly of people who uh, were on the losing side of, of that case. Do you feel like the end of this term will bring that same kind of feeling, especially to, to liberal interests uh, that it did before? Or uh, is there perhaps a chance for a rosier outlook? Yeah, I think that this will be uh, another conservative's dream uh, of a term at the end of it. You have a lot of cases that are coming up uh, involving religion, including one uh, involving a a wedding website maker who Mm -hmm. doesn't want to have to make uh, wedding websites for same-sex couples. You have immigration cases, which uh, are challenging some of the Biden administration's decisions on immigration policy. You have a big environmental case that really could uh, shred the authority of the Environmental Protection Agency in a way that we haven't seen before. The arguments in all of those cases make it seem that the conservatives will rule the day in all of them. So I think at the end of the court, you will really feel the impact of this 6-3 court uh, and the power that they have. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, Kimberly Ackenstore, always great to have you here, not just because uh, you know so much about the court, but because you're also a Detroiter. I love that uh, <laughs> you're uh, making waves at the national level on the, uh, all this stuff, too. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. It's always a pleasure, Stephen. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Remember, this is On Air Fundraiser. We do need your support. We want you to invest in this community that we are creating here on WDET. You can do it at WDET.org or 800-959-9338. And, of course, thank you very deeply for all of your support. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to take a look at the arguments for and against public and private Utilities, uh, lots of outages again after a storm last week. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. And we have.